Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Michael Columbus. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. You are now joining the Family Biz Show. Um, we uh, have a great show for you today. We're really excited to bring uh, Kathy Carroll and Mike Goldman um, to have some wonderful discussions about leadership and building leadership teams. Um, wrote a great book called Breakthrough Leadership Teams. Did I get that correct, Mike? No, plural, um, just Breakthrough Leadership Team. There you go, Breakthrough Leadership Team. And uh, Kathy and I um, know each other uh, through the Purposeful Planning Institute. And uh, she came up and supported us when we uh, had, uh, we launched Family Business Day, Upstate New York Family Business Day. Um, we'll see if that uh, gets to play out this year or not, or if we're, uh, uh, have to come up with just continuing continue doing this virtually. So uh, you know, our topic today, like we said, is how family business leaders can create and lead incredible teams. Um, what I wanted to do is uh, I just ask each of you to take a couple of minutes and introduce yourself, kind of give us a little bit of your background, how you got there, um, and how you you know how you come to be doing what you're doing today. So Kathy, if you wouldn't mind, you know, kind of kicking us off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I actually grew up in a family business. My grandfather was the original entrepreneur in our family, and um, there was um, there was a lot of drama in the family. Went the, the corporate track and spent 20 years in a variety of roles. I started as an actuary and then joined the travel industry. Got an MBA in the middle. Uh, and then in 2009, my father sucked me back into our family business. So I left the, the corporate world and joined uh, as president and chief operating officer of my father's manufacturing business. Uh, we manufacture rodeo equipment, um, literally ropes and saddles and training equipment for team ropers. And uh, that's when I really had a unique opportunity to compare leadership in a family business with leadership in a, in a public company. And it's like two different worlds, <laughs> very, very different. Um, and it was, a, it was a really incredible learning journey for me. And uh, I, led, I had the privilege of leading a turnaround with some really terrific colleagues. And then I left and started uh, my business, Legacy Onward, uh, to help uh, family business leaders thrive. Um, now that I realize, now at the moment when I recognized how different the leadership challenges were, I, I, I realized I could have used a coach when I was uh, leading my father's business, my family's business. Um, and now I have the privilege of being able to bring this to others. So I'm really pleased. Thank you and welcome. Mm -hmm. We're glad you're here today. Mike Goldman, tell us about yourself and uh, what brings you here? How'd you get, how, what is your journey? Yeah, my, my journey. So I coach leadership teams. So what I do, some family businesses and, and a lot of businesses aren't family. So I've got both. 
experiences. I've been a coach and consultant for the last 30 years or so. First half of my career was uh, working for big consulting firms. If you've heard of Accenture and Deloitte, two different consulting firms, uh, working with all Fortune 500 companies. Last half of my career, it's been my own business, uh, working with leadership teams. And what really drives me is, you know, I believe that everybody uh, should have the chance to feel fulfilled by what they do for a living. And the way I do that is by working with leadership teams to help them create great companies that people want to come work for, great companies where people can learn and grow and feel fulfilled. So that's, that, that's my journey. And I think it will be a uh, never ending one that I uh, uh, really fell in love with. So love what I do every day. Well, again, welcome to you both. We've got uh, two different parts of the country. Mike's in Jersey and Kathy in uh, Texas, San Antonio. So uh, welcome and uh, appreciate you have, being here today. Um, we discussed, you know, we got together for a little bit to start having these conversations to say, how does, you know, why, why did I say Kathy and Mike, you guys would be a great team together and this would be a, a you know, wonderful uh, conversation. And that, you know, exactly for that, that purpose that Kathy, your focus has been on developing of leadership skills and Mike's focus is on developing leadership teams. And, and I just thought that they were just a really neat, you know, um, uh, combination to be able to put this all together. So, you know, one of the first things, you know, that we talk about um, is, you know, the first decision every growing company must get right. And, you know, I, I was hoping as Mike, that, you know, you would kick us off and just talk about that a little bit. What do you feel is the, the first decision that every comp growing company must get right? Yeah, it, it's, it's the decision on who you're going to surround yourself with. You know, for a lot of businesses, family business or otherwise, it may start out with someone around the kitchen table and, and uh, barking out orders to maybe one or two other people that, that, that are helpers. Um, but one of the questions I ask my clients, in fact, it's one of the first questions I ask my clients, and again, my clients are leadership teams, is I say, if you had a chance to do it all over again, would you enthusiastically rehire everyone on your team? And when I say that, I normally get some snickers. I get some really uncomfortable looks uh, because that's, that's normally not the case. And, and I think the challenge, and I think this is an area we'll probably go a little deeper, but I'll stay at a high level here. I think the challenge is, you know, it's one thing for my corporate clients I work with that are not family businesses, when I talk about surround themselves with the right people, the biggest mistake CEOs make is they keep the wrong person on the leadership team too long. So I coach them and I had to have that difficult, make that difficult decision, have that difficult discussion. But it's certainly one thing to say, you know, hey, Joe, who heads up operations, he's just the wrong person We've got to have a difficult decision with Joe. We've got to cut the cord and find a new head of operations. It's a little bit different when Joe is Uncle Joe. So that's, that's let, let, I'm going to leave it at that because I think that'll be an interesting discussion. But to me, that's the first decision is starting with the leadership team and then cascading down throughout the company. That decision around who you're going to surround yourself with 
and, and the decision of, of who you're going to keep and, and who you're going to send off to go work for the competition. Perfect. Kathy, before I, I, I know you want to comment on that and put some pieces in, I think now would be a really interesting time. We, we created a couple of polls and I think this is right leads right into the conversation that we're having here. I am going to just put the first one up there. Um, and I've set these things up. If everybody, you know, could just, it's a true or false um, poll. So I just launched it. It's anonymous. And the question that, you know, Kathy had posed is, you know, have I regretted terminating someone's employment too soon? Um, and I just, uh, we've got two answers there. Great. Thank you. Well, every, okay, everybody's put it in there. Um, no, they, so they, they came back as, as false on that one. Um, that uh, never regret, uh, you know, firing somebody uh, too soon or terminating somebody too soon. When you're talking about, you know, decisions that, you know, leadership teams or leaders are making to grow their leadership team or grow themselves as leaders, Kathy, what are some of the first things that you're pushing leaders to be thinking about? Uh, is this the, the, the thing that you must get right as a, as a growing business? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are a few different things. I really like uh, Mike's answer. Um, getting the right leadership team in place is, is critically important. Um, and there are a few other things that I think are helpful too. Um, I really like starting with why. I like Simon Sinek's uh, start with why concept because uh, entrepreneurship uh, and leadership of any organization can be really, really hard on occasion. And when you've tapped into, when you've identified your internal why, uh, you, you have access to some resilience and some grit that uh, can carry you through these difficult times. So I would say uh, starting with your why can be a very helpful um, way to go. The second thing, and this is going to be um, a little surprising to those of you who know me well, but I'm going to say uh, the thing you really can't, can't mess up for a growing, a rapidly growing business is the cash. You have to get the cash bit right. And if you don't get the cash bit right, the whole thing falls apart. And it's funny because uh, when I got my, um, my master's in business, uh, I spent a lot of time in, in the finance um, world focusing on earnings reports and uh, EBITDA and uh, accrual based accounting things. And the whole cash thing really didn't hit my radar until I was operating my own business. And then I realized, oh, okay, this, now, I, now, I, now I get why cash is king. Uh, and I think when you're growing a business in particular, uh, it's, it's, it, it, as soon as you're out of cash and you have no access to additional resources, you're, you're really in, in a pickle uh, and it's hard to overcome that. So that would be the, the, and the reason why that's an unusual response for me, because as a leadership coach, I'm working normally in the, in the hearts and souls of leadership, uh, not, not on the balance sheet and in the income statement <laughs> or cash flow statement. I don't think that you would get any pushback from either Mike or I on that one. Um, you know, without cash, it's game over. Uh, and, and growing companies, especially growing companies, really need to pay attention to that. And there's, there's some formulas and some things that people can look at that, uh, um, think it, without looking at them, they get, they get out of whack pretty fast. Cash conversion cycle and, um, you know, Mike and I use a power of, uh, the power of one. I think we've um, seen that before, which is a, a great tool from cash flow story. Th thank you. That's a great answer. Appreciate that. 
by the way, so the other thing I, I would add there, Kathy, to support what you're saying and, and maybe tie it together is I think the reason why the cash is so important, it's not just so the owners could put more money in their pockets, although there's nothing wrong with that. The cash is important because it's the cash that fuels your ability to live that purpose, Kathy, that you talked about. Without the cash, you can't achieve that. Whatever your purpose is, ain't happening if you don't have the fuel in the car. Agreed. So, so we've got uh, the first decisions of, you know, who are we going to surround ourselves with, making sure we're paying attention to cash and uh, to put all of these things into perspective. Kathy, you and I, and you know, Kay and I have heard you talk about this before, but would you kind of tap into, you know, the value of emotional intelligence in terms of leadership and your team? Sure. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, so when the concept of emotional intelligence emerged in the mid-90s, the research showed that um, it wasn't just IQ that uh, predicted outperformance in leadership. It ended up being something different. And it was uh, something that they eventually called emotional intelligence. And the IQ matters. You need to have a certain amount of IQ. But it is in the relationships uh, that you have with other people, uh, the empathy that you have for other perspectives, the awareness of your own emotions and how your own emotions are driving your behavior, and your ability to manage those emotions in a way that's um, constructive and relationship building that can have a profound impact on amping up the effectiveness of your leadership. So um, emotional intelligence is something that I, I work uh, with my clients on quite a bit. Uh, and it's... Um, it continues, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a strong advocate and, um, and, and think it's, it's a real game changer for, for families and, and non-family leaders. Love it. Have you read, um, I just finished reading and so I keep talking about the books that I read, uh, Trillion Dollar Coach. Not um, yet. It, well worth the read. Um, I'd highly recommend it. It's Eric Schmidt from Google talking about um, Bill Campbell who was a former football coach turned into, um, you know, he was, ended up, he was the CEO of Intuit at one point. He got dragged out to, from the East coast to the West coast and, uh, and just everything about Bill shouldn't have fit. It doesn't fit Silicon Valley. He was a hugger. He was a cusser. Um, but he loved people and he loved every person and it was really neat. So he never wanted to do a book, but after he passed, um, Eric Schmidt and some of the other people that have been his, you know, mentees got together and said, the world needs to understand, you know, more about this guy. And it's exactly what you're saying. It was all EQ and his ability to have difficult conversations and, and do the right thing. Um, there's a lot of great, I, I'm going to reread the book. It was that good to go back and say, really need to focus on what this person is doing. So Trillion Dollar Coach by Eric Schmidt. You got to figure if uh, Eric Schmidt is telling you you're writing a book about somebody, it's probably good reading material. <laughs> so Michael, emotional intelligence and the, the value in you know, leadership and within the team. Thoughts. Critical. Uh, and and I'll, I'll relate it to what's going on for all of us today. Uh, always critical, but, but I'm seeing it. I'm really seeing the difference in my clients today. Those CEOs, those leaders 
without emotional intelligence, or it's not black and white, but with lower emotional intelligence, are really having a difficult time relating to their employees through this crisis we're going through, relating to their vendors, relating to their, their clients through this crisis. And those folks with emotional intelligence are getting through it really well. And I'm going to zero in on, on one piece that, that uh, one aspect, I guess I'd say, of emotional intelligence, and that's vulnerability. And to talk about books, uh, Pat Lencioni is an author. I love read anything you can from him. And his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, one of them, he talks about vulnerability. Um, and, and what I see around emotional intelligence these days is leaders have a tendency to think they need to put their superhero cape on and be strong and perfect for everybody else. You know, working from home is fine. I'm, as, I'm more productive than I've ever been. Uh, I'm not letting distractions bother me. I've still got this great vision for the company. We're doing amazing. I'm not worried about health, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, by the way, by the end of the day, they are so drained from wearing that cape that, that you know, they then, you know, open up that bottle of scotch, you know, until, until tomorrow. But the bigger impact is that if we believe we need to be superheroes for our people, which, by the way, doesn't sound so horrible. Of course, we need to be strong for our people. But if we are trying to show that we're perfect for our people, what do you think our people think they need to be for us? Yeah. They think they need to be perfect as well. And they're not. None of us are. And, and in this environment, in this situation we're all going through, um, it's really important for people to be able to be open and honest about how they're doing and how they're feeling. So as leaders, we need to do something that may be counterintuitive, but shows that emotional intelligence. We need to show our vulnerability. And I'm not saying, you know, take that webcam and shine it on, you know, you, you huddled crying in a corner, but you need to show that you don't, you're not a superhero through all this. You're having some struggles too. And those distractions uh, of your kids or the distractions of your parent that may be going through some health issues or your challenges or flow or other things. Yeah, you need to be smart about what you share and what, what you're not going to share. But if we show that vulnerability with our people, our leaders, our employees, they're going to feel comfortable showing that vulnerability right back. And the reason that's critical is especially as we start looking to slowly getting back to work, I won't say back to normal because I don't think we ever go back to normal, but as we start slowly getting back to whatever the new normal is going to be, we need our people to be honest about us, uh, be honest with us about where they're having a challenge. Uh, and if we're being superheroes and they're not being honest with us, we're going to go back to work and think everything's great. And then things are going to implode and we're not going to be sure why. So that, that emotional intelligence and especially that vulnerability aspect of it, it is critical. Love it. it I, would, I would throw in that that vulnerability builds trust. And you go back to Lencioni's book, it's, if you're allowed allowing yourself to be vulnerable, people trust that more. And... Um, I, it's funny that you brought that up, Mike, because um, I'm at, I was just asked to speak at, uh, I, I think it's Tech Rochester. So it's like the, you know, all the tech startups that are doing things here. And 
I'm doing a, a piece called Return on Trust for all these tech people. So I have nothing to do with, you know, technology and I don't know tech, but I understand trust and vulnerability. So I think that's a really good point. I appreciate that. Kathy, you know, before we move off of emotional intelligence, I want to ask you, when you describe emotional intelligence, what are some of the other ways that the leaders can be vulnerable and build trust and share with their teams? You know, like, you know, Mike brought up vulnerability. What are some of the other ways that, you know, emotional intelligence helps leaders to be able to run their team? Sure. Um, so leader, uh, emotional intelligence has been organized in a, a little bit of a matrix and I'll walk through the matrix. It starts with self-awareness uh, and it's self-awareness that you're having an emotion in the moment because the neuroscience has shown that our behavior, our actions come from our emotions and our emotions come from our assumptions and our beliefs. So if we actually want to change our results, we have to check in with our assumptions and beliefs, which drive the emotion, which drive the behavior, which drive the actions, which gets the results. So this awareness of the emotion is really a, a, a fundamental prerequisite in the domain of emotional intelligence to be able uh, to lead. Because when we're in a place of reactivity, when we're leading from a reactive uh, space instead of a creative space or a responsive space, um, we are our emotions have us, uh, and when we are aware of our emotions, we have our emotions, and we, we have the ability to put some space between that stimulus, which is the trigger of the emotion, and the response, as to, as opposed to no space, which is trigger reaction in the same moment. That makes sense. Hundred uh, percent. So, yeah, that creating that space, even if it's just enough space to take two deep breaths, uh, can radically change the way you show up and you can be much more intentional and purposeful about how you respond, which is the second uh, part of the matrix, self-management. Once you're aware of your emotions, how do you manage yourself with those emotions? Do you allow yourself to react or do you create the conditions for a more mindful, planned, deliberate response uh, with a longer term end game in mind, which is a nice segue to the third uh, quadrant, um, which is the uh, social awareness quadrant. And in the domain of social awareness, it's understanding the emotional dynamics of the other stakeholders in the situation. So it's no longer looking inward, but it's actually looking outward. And you ask questions, what do other people think about this situation? What do other people need in this dynamic? What are their feelings? What are their emotions that might be driving their perspectives? And it's uh, releasing a, your attachment to your view of the world and opening your mind and your heart to other ways of seeing the situation, knowing that your way is one way, but not necessarily the universal one way. There are multiple ways you can see a circumstance. And it's really important in uh, leadership to be able to understand why does Michael see it from this perspective and how does he see it? How does Mike Goldman see it? How does Kay see it? Um, and how are all those things connected and different? Which then leads to the final quadrant, which is relationship management. And that's where rubber hits the road in leadership. That's where you're building relationships, uh, uh, earning people's trust, um, driving uh, results by inspiring strong followership. And it's by leveraging all of those domains of emotional intelligence. Does that, does that help fill out the... <laughs> the that's, per that's perfect. Okay. Good. Um, Mike, you've been working with you know, leaders and leadership teams through your work and talking about 
you know, I, I got stuck on emotional intelligence here, so I hope you don't mind, you know, I'm kind of come back to this, but have you seen emotional intelligence inside of teams grow over time? Can it be learned? Absolutely. And, and a big part of it is focus. And, and I'll go back, Kathy, to what, what you said about emotions being such a driver. And one of the things I've learned, and, and it's the thing I, I focus on with my leaders from day one, is leaders tend to be very, very adept, very skilled at talking about what they don't want, about toxic people they don't want around, about a recession that's coming that they don't want, about whatever it is. Leaders are great at talking about all the things they don't want, but when you turn around and say, all right, I, I understand that you're really upset with your team because they're not doing this and they're not doing this and they're not doing this, but what is it that you want? all of a sudden there's silence. And it's almost like the first time they're thinking about that question, which is amazing to me. And one of the things I've learned that you can absolutely coach and it absolutely impacts your emotions is you gotta focus on what you want, don't focus on what you don't want. I promise you, for anybody listening to this, it, when you are having a negative emotion, any negative emotion, it may be frustration, it may be anger, it may be sadness, it may be fear. When you're having a negative emotion, I will guarantee you that you are focused on what you don't want. There's no way you're having a negative emotion focused on something you want. It's just impossible. Those things don't mix in your head. So if you're having a negative emotion, don't wallow in it understand it, like Kathy said, there, there's a space between having that emotion and acting where you could, you could be proactive instead of reactive. If you're having that negative emotion, understand, okay, I'm focused on something I don't want. What do I want? And when you focus on what you want, that emotion is gonna shift to a much more powerful emotion. It may just be an emotion of curiosity. How do I get that? It may be an emotion of excitement or of anticipation, or maybe even happiness or, or fulfillment. But that is absolutely coachable. I don't think someone, well, here they are, they've got a, they've got a low emotional intelligence, I guess I can't work with them. Uh, thank God it's coachable, or I probably wouldn't be here talking to you uh, today. I'd be somewhere, somewhere very different and all, all by myself and uh, lonely and upset. I'd be the one whimpering in the corner. So absolutely it's coachable. Love it. Yeah, and it's, yeah, not to be a dead horse with that, the trillion dollar court, trillion dollar coach, he need, Eric Schmidt needed a coach. And one of the things that Bill Campbell taught him is that, Eric, you're a smart guy. You have the answers. You need to pause, like Kathy said, and not respond when somebody asks that question or put something out there and let your team noodle on it. Let, let them discover the answer. That's how you're going to make a better team when the team is coming up with the solutions rather than you telling them what the solutions are. Um, so that's just a powerful and, and way. Michael, I'd say the challenge, and, and Kathy, you are probably more schooled on this than I am, but I've seen it. The challenge for family businesses there is it's amazing when I, when I, when I work with non-family businesses. They think, when I talk to them about culture and respect and vulnerability and all those things, they think, wow, family businesses already have, they're a family. And, and you get corporations say, we wanna be a family. I'm like, whoa, time out before you say you wanna be a family. Because I'll tell you, most of the family businesses I've worked with, 
they act in a leadership setting the same way they act around the kitchen table, which is not necessarily respectful. There's not a lot of emotional intelligence there very often. And it's amazing how they talk to each other. And especially when you've got non-family on the leadership team sitting around the table, man, they, they want to they crawl out of that room because they can't believe on how, how dad and son are beating each other up or the brothers are beating each other up. You know, I think that emotional intelligence, that, that vulnerability um, is even more difficult in a family business because you think you can act around the conference room table the way you act around the dinner table. And man, that stuff doesn't fly if you want to create a great business. That's a perfect segue um, to you know, the next question, which is, you know, from a topic perspective, how do you manage or how to, how to manage family members, you know, that are in the business and balance that with, you know, the family and the non-family members that are in the business um, from a leadership perspective, from, you know, take that emotional, you know, emotional uh, quotient and put that in there. When we're talking about that, Kathy, how do you, how does the leader manage those pieces? What should they be doing versus what shouldn't they be doing? It's a complex question because the role of family member is in many ways defined by our cultural experience. The role of business professional is defined by our cultural experience. And when we're in a family business, uh, the rules of engagement on the family side are often about uh, sharing and fairness and, uh, and sort of equity for everyone. And the rules on the business side are more along the lines of competition and meritocracy and profits. And so you've got these societal rules that are in direct conflict with each other because the family norms uh, of behavior are different than the business norms of behavior. And so when you're engaging in these conversations, one of my favorite examples of this is, is setting compensation in a family business. It's unheard of outside of a family business for everyone to get paid the same. It is quite common in a family business for everyone in the business uh, to, if, if their last name is on the front door, they earn the same amount of money, whether it's the CEO or the, the stock room. Um, and here's the logic, according to family rules, it's fairness, right? We're all members of the family. We all should get paid the same. We're all contributing to this business. And it's logical when you use the family rules. It's utterly a failure when you use business rules does not uh, does not translate well. Um, and so I think when you're in the family business domain and you're having a conversation with another family member, it can be very, very helpful to be transparent about what hat you're wearing. So if I'm wearing the mom hat, then I'm going to say, look, I'm going to be mom in this moment and I, I'm going to have a conversation with you as, as your mother. Um, and then when I'm back to my CEO person, I'm gonna say, now I'm putting my business hat on and I'm gonna be the CEO and I'm gonna hold you accountable uh, to the, the uh, objectives that you agreed to uh, in the first place. So it's, it's being super transparent about the hat that you're wearing in the moment. So you can have that, um, one of my favorite uh, expressions is that radically candid conversation, Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, which is both caring and direct. You can have a direct and caring conversation uh, with your family member uh, where you're not pulling punches, you're not 
indirect or avoiding things. You're not uncaring and harsh. You are coming from a place of love and form of communication, especially when you're clear about which hat you're wearing. Perfect. Michael, what are your thoughts on family members, non-family members, and how balancing that, uh, that the balancing act? Yeah, it's a crazy hard issue. And, and I think, you know, it gets back to what we talked about at the very beginning, where, where I think if you want to create, if you want to create a great company, you've got, to, you've got to have a great leadership team. You just can't. I don't know of any sustainably great company without a great leadership team that doesn't work. Now, you have some that maybe they had a great idea and they were, you know, 12 people and they sold to Google for a billion dollars and they didn't have a great leadership team. They just had a great idea, but a sustainably great company, you need a great leadership team. So I think as a family business, you have to decide what it is you want. And if you want a great company, then you're going to have to make some really hard decisions. And if uncle Joe is running operations and uncle Joe is a toxic C player, who's not living the core values of the organization, and not productive. And man, you gotta have a difficult conversation with Uncle Joe. And Uncle, Uncle Joe may not be the right person to be on the leadership team. But I get it, if your number one priority is we gotta keep this family together. And it's not about having a great company. We just, we wanna keep this company going and we're okay being good. Then you know what? Maybe you could postpone having that difficult conversation with Uncle Joe. But I think you gotta be open and honest about what you want. And if you want a great company, it's not, it's not an excuse to say, well, Uncle Joe's been there for you know, 30 years and I'm really uncomfortable having that conversation. He's, he's gonna retire in 15 years, so let's just hold off. If you wanna be a great company, that's not an excuse. But, but it's okay. You know, if you're a family business watching this, listening to this, and it's not important that you are a sustainably great company, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. That's okay. There are a lot of companies that, are, that sustain themselves and they get by and have a happy family. If that's what you want, that's okay. Just be open and honest about it and admit to it and it'll drive the decisions you need to make or you don't need to make. Makes sense. When you talk about building a leadership team, you know, what are you telling what are you telling the leaders? What are you telling the CEOs that are building the leadership teams, regardless of family-owned or not family-owned? What are some of the What are some of the things that you're looking for? Or you want them to be looking for? Is that to me, Michael? Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, I, I think the the in my book I break it down into, into six six major things, but it's got to start off with self leadership, right? You think you got to get right in. How do I hire the right people if you are not the right person? for the job, if you're not managing your emotions, if you're not leveraging your strengths, then you got a problem to begin with, it's gotta start there. So number one, it's about self-leadership. Number two, you've really gotta think about structuring your leadership team for now and for the future. For most organizations, the, the way they know they now need a head of customer service is when customer service is failing and things are falling through the cracks, oh my God, our head of operations is now handling too much. We need a head of customer service. You need to, to plan out your business. I, I stress with companies that they need a 12 quarter forecast. And I know that's a long time, but a 12 quarter forecast for their business 
on how sales, you know, what's happening with sales, what's happening with cash, what's happening with the number of widgets you're producing, what's happening with the number of, of clients. And look at that over time and plan out the structure of your leadership team over time. So if you know nine months from now, given your plan, you need to separate out your VP of sales and marketing into a VP of marketing and a VP of sales. Know that now so you can start working at it before you fail. So number one, it's self-leadership. Number two, it's about structuring the team. Number three, it's about defining the right culture for your team. When I talk about culture, I talk about values, vision, vulnerability on the team. So it's about culture. It's about having the right process in place to find the right people for the team. It's about having the right disciplines around executing as a team. And then lastly, what I talk about is how do you develop and improve as a team, which is never ending. How do you learn together as a team? Do you have a process in place for that learning? And how do you assess the team quarterly? And this is where the problem with Uncle Joe, poor Uncle Joe, I keep picking on him. Here's where the problem with Uncle Joe comes back into focus is you need to assess your team quarterly and understand on your leadership team and then cascade down who your A, a players, B players, C players, and what I call toxic C players. A C player is someone who's just really low in productivity. A toxic C player is someone who's hurting your culture, who's not living the core values. You've got to do that quarterly and be willing to make the hard decisions around dealing with your C players and toxic C players. And frankly, I believe to have a great company and a great leadership team, you can't even have B players on your leadership team. Your leadership team needs to be all A players. If you have any B players, they need to have the potential to become A players within six months or they're just the wrong fit for your team. So I just said a mouthful of stuff, but those are all the things I really think you need to get moving on to create a great leadership team. Kathy, I, would, I wanna bounce off of what Mike was talking about there for a second. How and when do families, you know, make that decision, you know, that decision of we're going to start um, taking a look at productivity, you know, from the player, where do they fit? How do they, you know, how do they fit into the family? How do they fit? How do they fit into the family business rather? Um, and how are they grading them? You know, it's, it's that taking the, taking it from a family that's running a business to a business that just happens to be run by a family. Um, that, that professionalism that happens, where does that conversation come in and you know, how difficult is it for families to have that conversation? Well, I uh, have done some research on this. Um, I actually am in the middle of writing a book myself and one of the research questions that I asked was uh, related to uh, accountability in terms of performance. And there were of the, I think, 75 family and business leaders that I interviewed, uh, I think there were maybe three or four that actually had formal um, performance reviews for family members. Uh, most most of the people, and this was this was highly middle market, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't, you know, the mom and pop shop, and it wasn't the uh, multi billion dollar family business. It was middle market. Um, most of the companies didn't even have disciplined performance reviews for their non-family, uh, but if they did, only a small fraction actually included family. So it's not a common practice, and 
it's no wonder why, right? These are really hard conversations to have with family members uh, because the rules of the game are different. You don't have permission as a family member to criticize a a sibling or a cousin. It's just not part of the family rules. Uh, But as a business leader, that's what's expected. So again, you've got this this clash of... um, of uh, rules that are in play in, in how you communicate. Um, so uh, the, the formula that I actually share with most of my clients is a formula that I've um, curated from uh, a lot of research on difficult conversations. And I w- I'm a self-admitted um, recovering conflict avoidant communicator. Um, Fortunately, I'm recovering because now I, I'm actually uh, quite comfortable engaging in constructive conflict, and uh, all the all the work that I that I did in order to build that skill is something that I um, am grateful for because now I can share it with clients. And most of uh, the content that I read and the people that I worked with walked me through some eight to ten step process, and that was way way more than I could remember. So I, I narrowed it down to five, and uh, I call it uh, Playfair. P F A I R. One of my clients said, "You just call it Playfair," and I was like, "Well, that's a great idea." So. I call it Playfair, but it's really P-F-A-I-R. Starts with permission. Um, you know, having the right conversation at the wrong time is definitely the wrong conversation. Um, if, you, if, you, if someone's on the way to their lunch hour and you're saying, hey, by the way, I need to give you some feedback, that, that's not the right time. Um, so make sure both people are prepared to have the conversation. Next step is facts. Um, just state the facts, you know, no interpretation of the facts, no assessment of the facts, just the facts as uh, anyone would describe them. Um, and then the next step is the assessment phase. And this is where the real art comes in. And in the as- assessment phase, um, you, you talk about your view of those facts. And it's really important that you take responsibility for your view. If, for example, I say, when I heard you, when I saw you roll your eyes in the meeting, I told myself that you were judging me and that you didn't think I was um, you know, doing a good job. And that's quite different from you were judging me and you don't think I'm doing a good job. That's an accusation. And that's a, that's an interpretation. It's not a fact, right? It's your assessment of that fact. And so it's critically important that you own responsibility. When I saw this, when I noticed this, this is how I responded. And by owning that assessment, it is a fact. It is your fact, right? It is your truth. Um, and you remain open to other perspectives on a situation. It, this is critical because it decreases the defensiveness in the other person. If the other person uh, feels like they're being accused or attacked in some way, it's human nature to instantly come up with defenses. If you own the, the assessment and you take responsibility for your interpretation of the fact, you can stay in an open conversation about the situation. Um, step four is uh, importance, I for importance. What, make this, what's make this, what makes this important? And not just uh, important to you, but important to the family, important to the business, important to the other person. Um, take it above yourself. Um, and then the last uh, part is R for resolve or request. And this is a little bit more um, of the art again, where you decide where to go. Um, usually it, for a first time difficult conversation, I might start with, like, I'm not sure where to go with this, um, but I'd like to resolve it. So I, I thought I'd bring it to your attention and see uh, how, how you experience this this uh, situation. And then at that point, shut your mouth, open your ears, open your eyes, and just listen. Listen to understand. Don't listen to be understood. Uh, stay really connected. And when somebody said, when the other person says something that really gigs you, say, 
hey, I'm I'm noticing a reaction that I'm having. Can you please say more about that so I can understand it better? Stay in the listening mode as long as you can. Um, And and that to me has been um, personally the most effective uh, formula for having difficult conversations, um, whether it's family or non-family. This is a universal, a difficult communication process. and, uh, and I think my, my clients have shared with me that they have found it very helpful as well. Speaking of difficult conversations, um, I'm gonna throw up uh, another poll real quick. And again, these are done anonymously. And what this says is how much do you agree with the following statement? I am comfortable having difficult conversations. Um, and I would tell you, yeah, I'll share mine. There are times when uh, I agree and there's times when I strongly agree. So I'm probably somewhere in the middle, but you'll notice that I took out the middle, middle ground <laughs> and I would, um, so that uh, you, you had to make a decision. Um, I go back and forth between the disagree and agree. There's times when I'm perfectly okay. And other times when I just want to bury my head in the sand and not have that confrontation. Um, but uh, like you, Kathy, over the, the years, um, have gotten much uh, much better at that than, uh, than I used to. So we have a, a, a strongly agree, um, an agree, and one disagree. So thank you for sharing, everybody. Really appreciate that. And that brings us to, you know, talking about difficult conversations because we're right there. You know, how to have difficult conversations to propel the team to new accomplishments. So Mike, if you wouldn't, you know, kind of pick up on that a little bit. And how do we, how do we have these difficult conversations? What are some other ways to do this so that we can propel the team, you know, to do, to do better, faster, stronger, so to speak? Yeah, I think, and by the way, I love, I love Kathy's model. It's very similar to a model I've used. I've seen some eight-step models and 10-step models and man, that's too complicated. To me, give give me four or five steps and, and I'm good. Um, But I think here, the challenge with difficult conversations, especially when it's one around coaching someone, uh, having that difficult conversation with someone who is just not not doing what they need to do. They're not a fit. They're not productive. We like to tell ourselves that we are holding back from having that conversation because we don't want to make them feel bad. And I think that's a load of garbage. I think the reason we're not having that conversation is we don't want to feel bad. And what we have to realize is that the folks on our team, and this, like Kathy, like your process, this goes for family businesses, not family businesses. We have to realize that there's someone on our team that's underperforming. They know it. Typically, they know it. And they're hurting. And by us not confronting it, not only are we hurting the organization, but we're hurting them. I believe this may sound, uh, you know, pie in the sky, but I believe everybody has the ability to be an A player somewhere. And by us letting a B or a C player really struggle without us having that difficult conversation, I believe we're hurting them. Sometimes you have to hold that mirror up to people and let them know what you're seeing, good, good and bad, let them know what you're seeing. So I think There are people that don't have that conversation because they don't want to make other people feel bad. I think you're hurting them by not having that conversation. There are times we don't have that conversation because uh, we have loyalty to that person. Well, again, family, not family. Well, Joe's been around for 
15 years and, you know, he's really trying. Well, are we, are, are we focused on being more loyal to that one person or should we be loyal to our whole organization who's now being held back by that one person? So you really need to challenge yourself. And, and by the way, you know, we're hurting, we're hurting our A players that are working their asses off. We're hurting them by keeping those folks around and by not having the difficult conversations. And I'm sure you guys have seen this, your A players start to perform like B players because they start to get fed up that you're letting the C players stick around that, that are dragging the company down. So, you know, I, you really need to challenge yourself when that you're not having that difficult conversation. It's more about you. You're not, you're not, it's not because you're so nice that it's hard for you to have that difficult conversation. You know what? The nice thing to do if you want to be nice is to have that tough conversation. It's right for that person. It's right for the company and it's right for you. Love it. Thank you. To um, jump on something Mike said earlier, I really liked um, what he said about uh, how to, how to build strong teams by aligning on the values. Uh, mm -hmm. The, 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 the Firms that I have admired the most have been the ones who, who really have thought carefully about um, what the values that they're going to live by, what they're going to walk away from because of values, what they're going to seek because of their values. Um, and uh, so I really, really want to honor that in Mike. Um, and then on top of that, once you, you are clear and you really seek people who share values, then I also really admire the companies that go seek difference. And this might be difference in, in cognitive ability, whether it's a Myers-Briggs thing or a, a DISC profile, or my, my preferred is Tetramap, which is built on the, the same thing as uh, the, the DISC um, archetypes, um, or any other level of diversity, whether it's diversity of perspective, diversity of experience, diversity of, uh, you know, whether it's the standard EEOC levels of diversity. When you bring um, a lot of different views in the room uh, and, and you are a, um, a, agreed and willing to adhere to the same set of values, you can have really, really rich outcomes. Now, they're not always easy, right? Because when you bring in all this difference, it creates a different kind of challenging communication dynamic because we tend to want people to behave like we do or to see the world the way we do. And so inviting difference creates the conditions for conflict. And if you have the skills to engage in constructive conflict, you could actually have outstanding and superior outcomes as a result. Mike brought up um, the five dysfunctions of a team earlier, and that goes back into that trust piece. Unless there's trust within the team to be in a safe space to have those conversations, they never happen. So conflict can be great. And you know, that's one of the things that um, you know, my team started off with uh, doing some disc profiles and, you know, reading some Brene Brown um, and, you know, these other, you know, the, the five dysfunctions. And, and we've realized that it's okay to have conflict. Um, and the conflict is, you know, healthy conflict is all about, you know, providing that space for differing opinions. And it doesn't always mean that, you know, we're, we're going to come to consensus and that everybody's going to be on the same page, but we want to make sure that everybody has that time to be heard, to be thought, you know, that their opinions matter. And, and that makes better in everything that you're doing. 
you know, it makes you stronger because if you're not open to those things and you're only doing it one way, right? It's, uh, it, it gets pretty, it gets pretty boring. Michael, I'll take what you said even further. I think not only is it okay to have conflict, let me make sure I get this double negative right. It's not okay not to have conflict. If I've got, if, if I'm the CEO and I've got five people in the room that agree with me all the time, I have five too many people in the room. We need that conflict. If there's, you know, to me, conflict is like two, two great ideas coming together and like, you know, theory of evolution, a, a third better idea comes out of it. So I think, I think you need that conflict. And as a leader, you should find ways to initiate that conflict. You know, as opposed to, you know, if everybody's always agreeing, you got to throw something out there to get some people disagreeing and, and constructively debating with each other, not cursing and yelling and throwing things, which could happen in a family business. Um, but, but that conflict is really critical. David Mamano, love that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, Kathy? I'll jump in. Yeah, there's, um, there's a difference about having conflict about an idea and having a conflict that's personal. Yeah. That, and that, that's where this, this play fair uh, formula for difficult conversations can be really helpful because that's when it starts to feel really personal, right? Having uh, conflict about ideas can be generative. It can be co-creative. It can be exciting. It's when it starts to feel personal that it gets really uh, hard. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, there's a, a family business that I'm working with right now. Um, and the, it's a husband, wife, and son team. Uh, husband is the industry veteran and highly conflict averse. Um, wife is industry newcomer and highly um, uh, active in conflict. And as we've been peeling the onion on what's really uh, driving them, they've been married for 24 years. Their pattern is very, very well-worn. And when she doesn't feel heard, she yells louder and stronger and she makes it more personal. And she's at the point now where she just flat out emasculates her husband uh, on a regular basis. Now his, his story is, look, I'm gonna get beat up one way or the other. Why do I even bother opening my mouth? I'm just gonna get, and that's how deeply um, uh, pained their relationship is. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that, that's a really extreme example of highly conflict uh, avoidant and conflict seeking. But just by raising awareness of their patterns, they're starting to engage differently and they're, and they're starting to, to, um, to engage in some of the more uh, healthy forms of communication. I'll give one other example of um, a family business where there was one, two brothers uh, working for their mother and one brother was completely checked out. This is kind of building on what Mike was talking about earlier. One brother was really checked out. And so uh, the family engaged in a difficult conversation and it turns out the brother who was really checked out was livid that his brother's wife was working in the business and he didn't like how the wife was treating his brother. And he's like, I signed up to work with my brother. I did not sign up for a three-handed monster. And he just basically checked out. And once he got his truth out on the table uh, and the family was able to be honest about what was really bothering him, he got fired up and is in it to win it again. So sometimes poor performance has nothing to do with their capabilities or their interests. It has to do with some other 
factor that's in play that could be contributing to their disengagement. We talk about creating that space to be able to have those conversations. And when it's, especially within a family, a lot of times that space isn't happening because the patriarch or the matriarch, you know, is just jumping right on the way they do at home to say, this is the way that it works around the kitchen table. And like you said before, in business, it doesn't work well that way. Thank you. Dave, Mamano, go ahead. Hello, Michael. Well, first and foremost, uh, I jumped on the link, didn't even see it was going to be on. Unbelievable. Hi, Mike Goldman. A nice <laughs> surprise to see your face. Small <laughs> world. We just, you know, he's been on my podcast. We just were Zooming last week, right? So, um, and then, you know, second, I want to disagree with everything that's been said. No, I'm just kidding. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to create a little conflict. Uh, <clears throat> but I know that uh, some here in Rochester have worked with uh, a guy named John Engels. It was a leadership coach locally. And we go through a lot with him about, um, you know, the whole conflict thing and being able to bring it in a, uh, in a, in a very candid way, uh, but, but in a tactful way. And I think that's the art, right? You know, because there's, there's one extreme of the Mack truck where they bring it candidly, but not tactfully. And, uh, and there's some bodies behind the truck along the way, right? Uh, and then there's the other extreme where, you know, he says, I love the way he says it, where, you know, the passive aggressive, you know, uh, 10 out of 10, you know, someone in the office has, you know, body odor. And uh, instead of being able to tell the person they have body odor, you, you put some soap in her uh, mailbox. And, uh, uh, but she doesn't know she has body odor, so she doesn't get the message when she gets the soap, right? So a message not delivered, right? So the two extremes um, seem to be uh, somewhat prevailing, right? And, uh, and I think it's an art to get in the middle uh, to be able to be really vulnerable. You're talking about Brene Brown and taking a deep breath. And sometimes you just have to, uh, you know, uh, just say, hey, you know, I love you. And that's why I'm going to tell you this. You need to hear this from somebody who truly cares. Hit them in between the eyes uh, in a candid yet loving and tactful way. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's when you can do that and, and the message is delivered, the person gets it and still feels, uh, you know, juiced up and inspired to be part of the team. I, I think that's the art form that we're going for, uh, in my opinion. So it's just, I joined a little bit late, but it's been a really good conversation. Yeah. And I think to David, I think it gets back full circle, back to the emotional intelligence. And it's where, you know, if that leader, that CEO, that owner, patriarch, matriarch, whoever it is around the table, if they're not modeling the ability to have a safe space and get into conflict, it's not going to happen. So it's really important that that's modeled at the top or people are just not gonna feel safe getting into it. Perfect, Kathy. Wait, we're at 12.59, so why don't we put together some parting words. The other thing is when you finish up, if you could just tell people where to find you, um, I would appreciate that. And uh, any other messages that you wanna relay? Sure, um, I just wanna acknowledge um, my favorite boss was a guy that I worked for at United Airlines who modeled this kind of communication better than anyone else. And so I just want a, a tip of the hat to him um, for helping me grow as a leader at that time. Um, you can reach me at uh, legacyonward.com. That's my website. Uh, and I've got all my contact info from there. And uh, it's been a pleasure, Michael, uh, being on your, on your show. So thank you so much for including me. Love to have you. Michael, then tell them uh, how they can reach you and uh, where, where to find your book. Yeah, so uh, uh, quick, quick parting word first is, is I truly believe as, as the leadership team goes, so goes the rest of the organization. So if you've got a problem in customer service, it may not be a customer service issue. If you've got a problem in sales, it may not be a sales issue. 
go back and look at the leadership team. As the leadership team goes, so goes the organization. Uh, the way you can find me is uh, uh, my new book is available on Amazon. It's called Breakthrough Leadership Team. I have another book called Performance Breakthrough that's also out there. More information on the book, you can go to BreakthroughLeadershipTeam.com. For more information on me, my website is Mike-Goldman.com. Beautiful. Well, I wanted to say thank you to everybody for joining us. Um, I'm Michael Columbus, and we're Family, Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And if any of these discussions um, have stirred something for you, feel free to reach out to us on our website or Kathy or Mike's website and uh, get a hold of some people that can help you with these conversations um, and create some safe spaces for uh, your family as you're going through and building your business. Everybody have a great day. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. We appreciate the time and trust and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Being part of a family is tough, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. Content presented is for informational and education purposes, and posted information covered and posted as views, not necessarily. Those the guests of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Michael Columbus is a registered representative. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Securities and Investment Advisory Services. Securities and Investment Advisory Services offered through Lincoln Financial Dealer member SIPC and registered SIPC and registered investment offered through Lincoln Financial affiliates offered through Lincoln Financial other affiliate companies. And other Family Wealth and Legacy LLC, Family Wealth and Legacy LLC, not affiliate of Lincoln Financial, Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, not provide legal or tax advice. Do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult advisor regarding any legal advice or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.